I don't know how many of you are movie people. I'm not a huge movie person, uh, but one of my favorite movies is the movie Shawshank Redemption. How many of you have seen that movie? Love that movie. It's just a, it's a really great movie. If you haven't seen it, I would, I would recommend it. Uh, but it is, it's, the movie takes place, it's set in the 1950s, and uh, it basically is, Shawshank itself is, is a fictional uh, maximum security prison that's located in Maine, and the story takes place predominantly at the Shawshank prison. There are some scenes in other places uh, as well, but the movie takes place predominantly at this prison, and it covers basically um, several characters that are incarcerated there at this prison and kind of their development and how they deal with life uh, behind bars. Certainly, if you know the movie, Andy Dufresne uh, and uh, Red are the two main characters in the movie. I just went blank on the uh, on Andy's name, but Morgan Freeman plays the, the guy named uh, who's uh, Red. They're the two main characters, but there's several others that the movie follows. One of those is a character by the name of Brooks, and you probably, if you've seen the movie, remember Brooks uh, rather well. Brooks was sent to Shawshank in 1905 for committing murder, and for the next 50 years, or the following 50 years, he lived behind bars there at Shawshank. And as he advanced in years, he was pretty much a model prisoner, and so he got to do things, and, and you know, his good behavior allowed him to uh, be certain things, eventually even becoming the prison librarian of all things. But in 1954, Brooks comes up for parole, and he is eventually approved for release. However, when he finds out that he's been approved for release, he promptly confiscates an ice pick from the kitchen, the prison kitchen, and attempts to harm one of his prison inmates, who's actually a, a friend of his. And so security guards and the other inmates end up intervening and, and stopping, preventing Brooks from uh, taking this other uh, inmate's life. And yet there's this incredibly sad scene, if you remember the movie, after uh, the event takes place and you've got Brooks now in his 70s, uh, just breaks down and bawls like a baby. Brooks had grown so accustomed to life behind bars that he was actually fearful of what it would be like if he were to ever get out of prison. Life behind bars was all he had ever known, and everyone realized that the only reason he was trying to take this inmate's life was so that he could stay behind bars. And so what they did is they ended up covering up the whole incident to the higher authorities and, and just swept it under the rug. And so Brooks was eventually released from prison. He spent uh, some time, went to live in a halfway house and bagged groceries. And for three weeks he did that and was able to kind of get by in his newfound freedom on the outside world. But eventually, if you know the end of the story, Brooks ended up giving up and taking his own life. Well, his word got back to the inmates there at Shawshank regarding what had happened to Brooks. They were shocked at the news when they heard that he had taken his own life. They couldn't understand why in the world a man who was behind bars for 50 years, who had now finally gotten the freedom that they all were waiting on and longing for, would take his own life. And some of the inmates engage in a, a pretty deep conversation as to why Brooks did what he did. And Red, as I mentioned, one of the main characters played by Morgan Freeman, offers his own perspective on why Brooks did what he did. And he says this. He says, Brooks was just institutionalized. The man's been in here 50 years. 50 years. This is all he knows. 
In here, he's an important man. He's an educated man. Outside, he's nothing. Just a used-up con with arthritis in both hands. Probably couldn't get a library card if he tried. I'm telling you, these walls are funny. First you hate them. Then you get used to them. Enough time passes, you get so you depend on them. That's institutionalized. We'll circle back to that scene here in just a few moments, but we have been in the midst of a series entitled, When God Asks the Questions. And we've been walking through some questions in Scripture that God asks of human beings. We spent the first four weeks looking at some questions from the Old Testament. We started in Genesis, went through uh, a couple in Genesis, and then uh, found our way to the book of Jonah. Uh, last week we looked at John chapter 8 and a question that Jesus asked of a woman that's brought to him by some teachers of the law. He asked the question, has no one condemned you? And so we've kind of been looking. Again, we spent the first four weeks looking at questions God asked, and we are going to spend the next four weeks, including last week, looking at uh, the questions that Jesus, God's Son, asked. And so this will be the second of those questions. And the one that we're going to look at this morning uh, is a question that on the surface seems a little bit strange, if you just kind of look at it from a surface level. And, and we find this question in John chapter 5, if you want to go ahead and turn there. We'll read the story and then we'll talk a little bit more about it, and I'll explain why I uh, spent some time, first thing today, giving that example of, uh, of Shawshank. So here's what John writes, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, and one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred, and while I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. This pool of Bethesda was actually, or is actually, one of the more studied and excavated biblical sites that we read about uh, over the past 100 years. The pool itself was located just outside and North of the temple, it was a little longer and wider than a football field, so it wasn't just your typical small little backyard pool. It was quite something to, to behold. And in the days of Solomon, it was actually a monument to the wealth and prosperity of Solomon and Israel. But in the days of Jesus, it had become a gathering place for those dealing with illness and disease. And the reason so many gathered at this pool was because many believed that it was actually to be a source of miraculous healing. In fact, you may notice, and maybe you noticed on the screen as it was being read, uh, or maybe you notice in your Bibles that you don't have verse 4 in there. If you look down, there is no verse 4 as you read through. You go to verse 3 and then you skip down to verse 5. Uh, but many versions do include, include a footnote that has verse 4 uh, in there and explains why these people were there. In fact, I'll, I'll read it to you, uh, or at least explain it to you, that, because they believe that from time to time, when the water was troubled, which basically what that means is that sometimes the water would sink and then rise rapidly, and they looked at that as being troubled, 
they believed that it would do that and that it was troubled by an angel himself who visited the pool. And so the first person who would get in the pool after the angel, angel troubled the waters, so to speak, would be healed. And so people would sit there for hours at a time, either waiting for the waters to be stirred or troubled, we're waiting for some change, waiting for some alms to be handed out, thrown in their direction. And so this is the scene that Jesus enters into. And among this scene of the blind and the lame and the paralyzed, Jesus picks out this one lone invalid man. He doesn't pick Jesus out, but rather Jesus picks him out. It's Jesus who takes the initiative here, but it's really the way that Jesus initiates the healing process that is most intriguing to me. He asked the man this question, do you want to get well? I mean, just think about that question for a second in the context of which Jesus is asking it. I mean, it seems a rather strange question at face value. Why would Jesus ask a man who has been sick for 38 years years if he wants to get well. On the surface, it seems like one of the more ridiculous questions that you could ask someone who's been chronically ill for that long. Do you want to get well? I mean, who wouldn't want to get well after being sick for 38 years? And didn't this man's presence at the pool itself, this pool of Bethesda, testify to his desire to get well? If there's any place that people were going because they wanted to get well, I mean, it seems like that would be the place, and that's where he is. That's where he's been hanging out. The question on the surface seems absurd, maybe even rude to a certain extent. I mean, how many of us would have the audacity to walk up to someone in his position and ask that question, do you want to get well? He's been sick for almost four years decades. But of course, Jesus doesn't ask absurd or rude questions. And so maybe Jesus knew something about that man that was going on underneath the surface in this man's life. Back to Shawshank Redemption. Morgan's, Morgan Freeman's character, Red, suggests that Brooks had grown so accustomed to a way of life in prison that he couldn't imagine a way of life in freedom. His whole identity was wrapped up in who he was behind those prison walls. He, he knew who he was. He knew his identity. He knew his limitations. He had a rhythm of life. As Brooks says, or as Red says, Brooks was institutionalized. And I, this is what I want you to hang on to. This is, it's so intriguing, the, the psychology of it all. He says, Brooks was institutionalized. It's a funny thing about these walls. At first you hate them, then you get used to them, and then after enough time passes, you grow to depend on them. You know, the idea of institutionalization isn't just fiction, confined to a fictionary or fictional facility, prison. Mental health professionals testify to the fact that it's possible to be in a certain situation and under the same set of circumstances for so long that even though at one time or another you, you thought that that situation would be or was abnormal or, or subnormal, that over time you eventually, that eventually, that situation eventually becomes normal to you. Let me say that again. You can be in a situation, in a circumstance, in a way of operating, in a mindset for so long 
that that mindset that at the beginning, or maybe even before you got there, seemed abnormal, subnormal, even wrong, given enough time in that situation, can become to feel accustomed. You can become accustomed to it, maybe even comfortable in it. And so perhaps Jesus knew what he was doing when he asked that man, do you want to get well? After all, the man had been sick for 38 years, and that was more than enough time for him to move from hating his illness to getting used to his illness to ultimately depending upon his illness. You see, you can be in a physical condition or a certain surrounding for so long that no matter how debilitating or how confining it may be, you can actually become accustomed to it to the point that you no longer desire a situation for the better. And I know for some of us, we may think that is so crazy, and yet I would caution us to maybe look in some areas of our lives where that may be the case. And you actually may even be fearful of a situation for the better, because where you are is all you've ever known, or what you've known for so long. Which leads me to wonder, what if the man's ultimate problem wasn't that his body was paralyzed, but rather that his will was paralyzed. But not only did this man's lengthy illness contribute to him possibly being institutionalized, but also the type of people that surrounded him every day could have also helped to contribute to that. It probably became very easy for him to have his sense of normalcy redefined. After all, not only had he been sick for so long, but he had been surrounded by people who had been sick for so long. And your view of what is normal can be dramatically impacted by the context in which you live every single day. If all you see around you is what you see around you, then that becomes what is normal. People can grow up in dysfunctional families and situations, and yet no matter how dysfunctional those situations might be, if that's all they've ever known— Some of you can relate to this. If that's all you've ever known, then it begins to seem normal to you over time. This man had been sick and had been surrounded by others who were sick day in and day out for who knows how long. All he knew was sickness. It had become the norm. And it may be difficult at times for us to kind of wrap our minds around and imagine, but it's a funny thing. Funny thing about about a disease about prison walls because at first you hate them and then you get used to them and then after enough time passes you can actually grow to depend on them and whether or not you've ever suffered from a prolonged illness or spent any extended time behind bars the reality is that I think all of us know the truth that it is to be institutionalized because I think it's possible for us to be spiritually institutionalized. We can be in a struggle or in a particular sin for so long or maybe it's a spiritually incapacitated state or just a spiritually paralytic state. I mean, I've asked this question of some people, you know, maybe it's not that we're knee-deep in sin or neck-deep in sin, but, but maybe if you look back, has your spiritual life grown in the last five years, 10 years, 20 years? That's a spiritually paralytic state. 
And you can be in that state for so long that the condition that we used to hate, that we used to believe was wrong, we've now grown accustomed to. And maybe we've even grown to depend on. It's actually become a source of our identity, and we've reconstructed our life around it. And sometimes we can not only be in this condition for so long, but we can be surrounded by people who struggle with the same problem or have been in the same spiritually incapacitated state for so long that our sense of normalcy and what is good and what is right has been redefined. And the sickness we used to dream about living without, we now settle for living with and have even grown accustomed to. I saw a story, it's been several years ago that I saw this story, but it still sticks with me, just what the writer said. But it was from the Tour de France from several years ago, and it told the story of one cyclist who had worked his way into the lead early in the race, only to find himself about midway through being passed in the race and falling down the, the rankings of the leaderboard. And in the process, just, he just fell off all the way because he kind of lost his heart for the race. In fact, the words of the writer, again, still ring in my ear. Here's what the writer said. He said, somewhere, somehow along the way, the young cyclist allowed the struggle to kill the dream. And I wonder if that doesn't speak to some of our situations this morning. That we've allowed the struggle to kill the dream. And I wonder the same thing about that man lying beside the pool, if that wasn't the case for him, in which the struggle had killed the dream. He'd been sitting beside that pool place of healing and restoration for decades, and yet Jesus still asked him the question, do you want to get well? And sometimes when it comes to the possibility of change, the issue isn't God's willingness, it's ours. It's our willingness to make those changes, and we all need a gut check from time to time, something that calls us to look within ourselves and ask if we really do want what we say we want. I mean, we'll come in here and we'll talk about the things that we want and we'll look the part, but we need a gut check from time to time. Is this really what we want? I mean, is this really what we, we are giving off the perception that we want by the way that we live and the things that we involve ourselves in? Because we gather around our healing pools of worship services and Bible studies and service projects and small groups, and it's very easy to keep showing up beside these healing pools, and yet it's a, it's a funny thing about being in a spiritual prison or suffering from spiritual paralysis for very long. At first you hate it, and then you get used to it. And then enough time passes and you can actually grow to depend on it. But the good thing about Jesus is that he's not going to leave us there. He's not going to leave us alone. His will for us is not to be institutionalized. And so he'll come to us with a gut check every now and then like the one in this man's life. And facing those gut checks is oftentimes the first step in moving out of the world of the institutionalized and moving into the world of the changed and the transformed. And for some of us, we may be in a season of our lives where the struggle has killed the dream. And you're here, but you're barely here. And we're dealing with a lame spirit, but there is hope. Because Jesus doesn't just leave the man with that question. The story ends as Jesus says to the man, get up. Get up. 
pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and he walked. Apparently Jesus' words were powerful enough to make up for what was lacking in that man's will. And so it is with all of us. That in God's word and in his spirit, there is more than enough to make up for what is lacking in our will. I love what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And so don't let the struggle kill the dream. And it's in that spirit that I want to close today by asking three questions that I believe Jesus' question provokes when he asks the question, do you want to get well? It's a question for all of us this morning, wherever we are. But I think it also provokes three questions as well. And here's the first one. What is it that I'm settling for that I should be sick about? What is it this morning in your life that you are settling for that you should be sick about? What is it that I've settled for as normal? And yet it's not when I consider who Jesus is and what he's calling me to do. When I consider what his word says. And this isn't just a question for us as individuals. This is a question for us in our marriages. It's a question for us in our families. It's a question for us as a church. What is it that we're settling for as normal that's really subnormal, but we've grown accustomed to the way it is for so long that we've just given up on the dream altogether, and now we're just going through the motions trying to get by? What dream has the struggle killed in our marriages, our families, our churches? And when are we going to start saying, you know, it doesn't have to be this way? It, it doesn't have to be this way. And what if we began to recover that spirit in every area of our lives where we've been institutionalized, where we would just stand up and say, I'm no longer settling for this. It's time to stand up and allow Jesus to make a change in me. You know, mental health professionals say that the fifth and final stage that somebody gets to uh, when they have a terminal, terminal illness is that of acceptance. And that's not in and of itself a, a bad thing. I don't mean to portray it in that. Um, but I do think, and I would suggest to you, that all too easily we arrive at that fifth stage when it comes to our spiritual life. That, that we just accept where we are. I, I, I'm never going to change. Things aren't going to get any better. Or I'm just settling for where I am right now. You know, we were talking this weekend. I, I can't believe it's already the 17th of October, right? Like, where did January through September go? I, and how quick are we going to get through November and December? It's the, we're almost at the end of another year. And usually during this time, what do we start doing? We start thinking about things that we wish we had done better in the old year, things that we'd like to do better in the new year, things we'd like to change, things we'd like to do differently. Why not start today? Why, why do we need a new year? Why do we need to wait two and a half months until we get there? Why not start today? What is it in your life that you're settling for that you ought to be sick about? May today be the day that we stand up and say, it doesn't have to be this way. No longer am I going to allow the struggle to kill 
the dream. But if you're not going to let the struggle kill the dream, here's another question that you need to address, and it's this. Who will I walk with? Who will I walk with? You know, being spiritually institutionalized can have a lot to do with one's surroundings. Like I said earlier, that paralyzed man had been surrounded by everyone who was just like him for an extended period of time. And if the only people in our lives are the ones who are just as sick and paralyzed as we are, then we're likely to remain as we are because there's no alternative vision for what the future might hold for us. All we see are others who are just as sick and just as paralyzed as we are. Now let me be clear. All of us are sick and lost without the saving power of Jesus Christ. Every single one of us. So don't get me wrong on that. But we also need people in our lives who are walking and running in areas where we are lame. If you are surrounded by people who are lame in the same areas that you are, where do you think you're going to go? Right? We need people who are walking and running in those areas that we are struggling in. People whose presence and life fills us with a vision of what can be and what's possible in that particular area of our lives. I believe that we should all be in relationship with at least two types of people. Okay? I'm not saying this is what you're limited to, but I think we should all be in relationships with at least two types of people. I think you need to be in relationships with people who are lost without Jesus Christ that you can help bring along and bring them to Jesus. And I think you need to be in relationships with people who are in front of you in their walk with Christ who can help bring you along in your relationship with Jesus. You need both of those, right? Now, we're, a lot of us are still going to be in some same areas, and, and you need those people too that you can help each other in your struggles. But if you don't have somebody that you're helping to lead to Christ— because that helps you be an example for them. And if you don't have somebody who's helping to lead you further in your relationship with Christ, why are we surprised when we stay the same? And we look back five years, ten years, and nothing's really changed. I may not have missed a Sunday, but I missed out on the heart of what Jesus has called me to and who he desires for me to be because I'm still the same person I was. I'm still stuck in those same ruts. And so the question is, who will I walk with? Who will you walk with? And what are my surroundings like right now? And here, here's the third question, the last question. Will I be a conduit of God's goodness and not just a consumer? Will I be a conduit of God's goodness and not just a consumer? What Jesus does in this man's life, he does on the way to a Jewish religious feast. And Jewish religious feasts were times of celebrating the faithfulness and the, the goodness and the provision of God. They were festive and celebratory and joyous occasions that involved consuming the best foods and the uh, you know, fellowship and, and hanging out and, and, and really giving thanks and praise back to God. Not all that unlike what we're going to do in little less than a month at Thanksgiving, right? Very similar idea. But on the way to celebrating the goodness of God, on the way to consuming the feast, Jesus is willing to become a conduit of God's goodness that others might also taste of God's goodness. And so will you be a conduit of the goodness of God and not just a consumer? Because it's in the footsteps of Jesus that all of us are called to follow. And so in whose life, whose life, pick, get a name in your head, in whose life are you going to be a conduit of God's goodness today?
Because it's a funny thing about these prison walls. First, these walls that surround people, they hate them. But then they get used to them. And after enough time passes, they can even grow to depend on them. And they need somebody to help bust them out. They need someone to come alongside and encourage them to not let the struggle kill the dream. They need someone to come alongside them and offer them an alternative vision for what is truly possible through the power and the goodness of God through Jesus Christ. And so I simply leave you with the question that Jesus asks of all of us today. Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well?